Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The Supreme Court has been issuing big rulings all week long, but one that everybody was especially tuned into was that on President Trump's tax cases. The court ruled that Manhattan prosecutor Cy Vance has the legal right to subpoena records from Trump's financial institutions, but rejected the House's effort to get similar records. For more on why you won't be seeing President Trump's tax returns anytime soon, we'll talk to Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs correspondent at Politico. The president probably did better with the ruling relating to Congress than he did with the one relating to the New York prosecutor. In the case involving the New York prosecutor, the Supreme Court basically rejected the arguments that the president had put forward that he was essentially absolutely immune, not just from criminal prosecution, but really from anything related to a criminal prosecution. In other words, any type of subpoena or investigatory step. It was a very, very broad argument that the president's lawyers put forward. You could even argue that it amounted to a suggestion that not only he was immune, but his friends, family members, and associates were immune because if he had records that might pertain to their guilt in some criminal offense, those would be beyond the reach of the prosecutors under the president's lawyers' arguments. And the Supreme Court fairly resoundingly rejected that position, saying not only that there was no absolute immunity, but they wouldn't even require the prosecutor to show an unusual or heightened need for these records before digging into them. On the other hand, they did say the president is free to make more routine kinds of arguments that this is too burdensome or that these records are subject to some sort of privilege. So the timeline here, both for the New York case and the congressional case, is interesting. Uh, Although the president suffered, I think we'd have to say, at least a, a partial defeat today, whether these records are actually turned over to anyone before the election and whether there are any real consequences for that, I think is sort of unclear and maybe doubtful in the wake of this ruling. And then obviously was the big question, will we see these before the November election? It could be potentially damaging to the president on that front. In the Manhattan case with District Attorney Cy Vance, even still, he won't be getting those records right away either. He still has to go back to a lower court and they have to kind of argue this whole thing again still. Yeah, he won't get them right away. And the other thing is that the congressional subpoena was probably the more expedited and more efficient way for this information to reach the public. Remember, in New York, you're talking about grand jury subpoenas. That information is usually treated as secret unless there's some sort of litigation or a criminal prosecution that flows from it. We know that prosecutors were looking at issues relating to taxes surrounding the president's companies. One of his former lawyers, Michael Cohen, made some claims that there was some effort to illegally minimize tax bills through fraud. And we, we think that and other things are being explored by prosecutors there. Obviously, if charges like that were filed in advance of the election, that would be damaging to the president. Talk to me a little bit about the justices themselves and how they ruled. The two justices that President Trump appointed ruled against him, at least in the Manhattan side of things. How did they feel about this ruling in particular? It's interesting here. On both of the rulings, the Chief Justice John Roberts wrote them, and that's not uncommon for him to do in what he thinks may be the most politically sensitive rulings for the court. 
But you're quite right. It's clearly painful to the president to have Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch go along with these decisions. In fact, the justices who put up the greatest resistance today were really Justice Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas, who precede President Trump's term in office. So it was not at all surprising the president came out shortly after this decision and complained bitterly about it. He called it a political prosecution. He said courts have given broad deference in the past, but not me, with an exclamation point in all capital letters. So he seemed really mad about these decisions, although it's interesting, after initially painting them as kind of a defeat and going on kind of a rant against them, in the ensuing hours, the White House has tried to argue that the decisions aren't really a defeat for the president and that there's kind of a roadmap here for him to go into the lower courts and continue to put up a fight. They don't use the term run out the clock, but in practical terms, the result of that might be to run out the clock. When you think about when these decisions were released at this point, nine days into the month of July, and the election being about four months away, it's just not clear that all the steps the Supreme Court has laid out here, either for Congress or for this New York prosecutor, will be complete by then. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, it's definitely a win if it doesn't come out by the time the election happens. So the bottom line, then, it seems that the president is not above being investigated, but the boundaries there aren't fully defined just yet. What does this mean going forward? Well, I think beyond President Trump and even beyond his presidency, the rulings are kind of a setback, actually, for Congress. Congress has generally claimed that they have the right to subpoena just about any information they want if it's related to some legitimate legislative inquiry. And most courts, when they get a subpoena or a case about a subpoena like that, they tend to just sort of glance at it to say, well, is this related to what Congress is looking into? And they allow the information to be turned over or they require it to be turned over. And the Supreme Court has said, at least in cases involving the president, and maybe you know, they think the courts need to take a more searching look at what Congress is doing, what exact information it claims it needs, and whether the subpoenas might, for example, be too broad, maybe fewer years of tax returns might be sufficient to meet Congress's ends. And that's the kind of scrutiny, at least in recent decades, mm-hmm. that the courts have not done. So it'd be, I think, quite a change for Congress if every time they want to subpoena someone, they're going to have to make that kind of submission to a court. It might really cut back their oversight powers, not only over the executive branch, but over everything they try to legislate on across the country. Josh Gerstein, Senior Legal Affairs Contributor at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, happy to do it. Take care. In coronavirus news, the hunt is on for vaccine test subjects, and coronavirus researchers are having to compete to recruit tens of thousands of healthy people for phase three trials. While drug makers usually recruit patients through advertising on social media or at doctor's offices, they are now looking at pharmacies, enlisting churches in the search, and even requesting their own employees and families to ask around. For more on the search for vaccine trial participants, we'll speak to Jared Hopkins, farmer reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So vaccine trial development is going so quickly for COVID-19 vaccines. There's more than a dozen that are in testing of humans so far in early stages, which means that they are test mostly for safety and whether or not they can go forward. And so once the first phase of safety trials in maybe a few dozen patients are complete, they move on to these larger phase trials that for COVID are calling for tens of thousands of patients, 30,000 patients per trial 
for several upcoming trials. And these are crucial because before any vaccines can be massively distributed to millions or billions of people in the U.S. or around the world, they have to prove that they work in these trials, which are controlled. And typically, some patients get the vaccine, and then some patients get a placebo. And then you see whether or not the vaccine works at protecting people from getting COVID-19 infections. So let's look at some of the numbers. The federal government is planning to fund three 30,000-person trials this summer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, and Johnson & Johnson. And then Pfizer is planning to start their own 30,000-person trials. So we need 120,000 healthy people or, you know, people that haven't got it yet to participate in these trials. And they're doing all sorts of new things to recruit them. They're also looking at algorithms to find out where the next hotspot might be so that they can go to those places and recruit those people. It's really interesting, you know, from how this process works. And it's unprecedented, really, in the idea of this many healthy volunteers this quickly. And that's one reason why these trials are so large. So normally drug makers will recruit patients to test trials through advertising, you know, print or radio, social media, or very commonly, just when you go visit your doctor in the office, if there's some sort of medical condition you have or you're going to get a flu vaccine, they might ask you to enroll in a trial then. But trials during normal times can take years to finish or take months. And vaccines take, you know, on average, like more than a decade to work, but we don't have that sort of time. So what's going on here is some of the different sort of strategies are researchers and drug companies and some of the firms that recruit patients are taking some unusual steps. And that includes mining patients' data or basically testing results at pharmacies and testing locations, test Some folks are going out into the communities and enlisting churches and other community organizations. And then some testing sites, which are hospitals and clinics, are turning to employees of their own hospitals and asking them to ask friends and family to come in here to enroll in these trials. So lots of different sort of strategies that are going on. And part of it is that they want to do this effort as quickly as possible to get these patients into these trials. One of the interesting things that I didn't really and still don't really know exactly how it works was, you know, once you get the vaccine, they send these people to go back out in the community and kind of live their normal lives to see if they would catch it, to see, you know, if they do catch it, how the vaccine responds there. And that's why I said that, you know, they're using algorithms when things targeting states such as Florida, Arizona, Texas, where there are hotspots right now because they have to go back and be in the real world and to see if these vaccines work in the real world. Some companies and some researchers, they are running some artificial intelligence and algorithms trying to figure out where potential areas will be, you know, the quote unquote hotspots of coronavirus, because that's essentially what you want to see is is how it works in the real time. And by all the indications, by all the experts, is that we will be dealing with this virus for the foreseeable future. But that means looking two months down the road or three months down the road sometimes because you do have to sort of put test subjects who don't know necessarily if they are vaccinated with a placebo or with an actual vaccine to see how it works. Then you measure and you check these patients or these study subjects to see how they do. It's a very sort of unique situation that we're in. They're also looking to fill all the categories. They're looking for elderly people, minorities, 
participants that are in the higher risk pools of infection because they need to make sure that this vaccine could potentially work across the board. With a lot of public health officials and others have said a very important issues here is that testing and making sure vaccines are effective to the high risk populations, which so far do include older folks, the elderly folks over 65, ethnic minorities, as well as individuals maybe with underlying health conditions too. And some of these take additional efforts to recruit. Elderly are particularly of concern because they are shown in high numbers so far to uh, contract the disease, but also they have weaker immune systems. So as you get older, your immune system becomes weaker, which means that vaccines sometimes need to be added with little boosters, I guess, as they call them. Their very scientific term is adjuvant. But you add something to a vaccine and you make it a little bit more, hopefully, potent that can help the immune system. And minorities are also a group that public health officials and researchers and companies are looking to enroll. And they involve additional steps to do this. So not only do you want to find the 30,000 people, but you want to make sure that it's reflective of the population that necessarily needs and is at high risk of COVID-19 infections. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you. And in not-so-good news, some marriages are starting to buckle under quarantine and strict lockdowns. In some households, months of monotony and spending too much time together is exposing bad behavior and exacerbating underlying problems most likely there before the pandemic began. For more on this, we'll speak to Marissa Cascino, senior editor at Washingtonian. I think even for the happiest, healthiest marriages, quarantine is very trying. I mean, all of a sudden, you're not just sharing a home with your spouse or your partner. You're sharing a workspace or you're trying to balance homeschooling your children with keeping, you know, on top of your full-time job. So I think that's important to stress is that this has been a tough time for even the healthiest, best marriages. So the partnerships that were already on the rocks or maybe already had problems that were bubbling just beneath the surface, those ones have been particularly challenged during this time. I think a lot of these marriages may have ended at some point regardless of quarantine. It's just that all of this time stuck together in the same house has made problems that might have been somewhat tolerable really, really impossible to ignore. These are just the times that we're living in right now. And as you said, the pandemic being on these lockdowns kind of exacerbates some of these underlying problems. And then you're stuck with a person. You know, a lot of people just can't pick up and go in the same way during normal times. So this is kind of reflective in some of the stories that you shared in your article. Share some of those stories that you had with some, of the, with some people. The most extreme cases are the marriages where at least one partner thought everything was fine before quarantine and some sort of earth-shattering discovery has been made as a result of being stuck together. So there's one woman in my story I talked to her lawyer. I didn't speak with her directly, but her lawyer, her divorce lawyer, heard from this woman who thought that everything in her marriage, for the most part, was fine. Like a lot of people, you know, in Washington or in big cities, she has a very demanding career, as does her husband. So when times were normal, they were often out of the house a lot. They were traveling for work. And even when they were in town, they were working long hours and just not seeing that much of each other. So now all of a sudden, they're locked down during the pandemic, spending 24-7 together. And it turns out it's a lot harder to keep a secret when you're stuck in quarantine with your spouse. 
So this poor woman happened upon some direct messages in one of her husband's social media accounts from a longtime girlfriend that he'd had in, in another city. And in fact, he had practically a double life. So that's a very extreme scenario, of course, yeah. but it's also the kind of thing that this weird sort of situation that, that we've been in with quarantine gives people the opportunity to discover. And maybe otherwise, this woman never would have discovered it or it would have been, you know, years before she figured out that something was really wrong in her marriage. And then if the suspicion arises, you know, what do you do to kind of figure it out? You have to do some sleuthing. Sometimes people are paying private eyes to investigate their spouse and they're paying a lot of money for that. You spoke to a few private eyes who were also kind of getting caught up in the mix of trying to figure these things out. And these guys have been in, in the private investigative business for decades, and they were telling me that they've never seen anything like this. A lot of the cases that they're investigating now started before the pandemic. So that's an important clarification, I think, that these spouses already had some suspicion before quarantine. But perhaps you would assume that because we're in the middle of a public health crisis, people would at least put their philandering and their cheating aside until the public health risk <laughs> subsides a bit. But it turns out that's not true. And that is what these private eyes found so shocking that even though we're all supposed to be social distancing, they're catching husbands, meeting up with girlfriends or just random people they've met on Tinder or on other hookup sites at hotel rooms. This one PI told me that he followed a mom to a park where she was meeting up with her boyfriend or her, you know, on the side and she brought along her kid. So some of these stories are pretty sad. And, yeah. and then in turn, you know, of course, these people are out cheating on their spouses and then coming home. And not only are they coming home and having been unfaithful, but they're also now potentially exposing their partners and their families to coronavirus because they haven't been careful. So it's like this sort of double threat, like cheating taken to a different level. And even the ultimate solution, the divorce and finalizing divorce is kind of elusive in all of this because the divorce cases have been delayed. You know, there's a lot of other things that have been put in the queue right now that need to be handled before that. And some people are saying that they can be delayed till as late as next year. So even that part of it is a difficult thing to navigate. That's another stressor on top of all of this, because, you know, in normal times, if I discovered that my partner was cheating on me and I decided to get a divorce, that would be traumatic enough. But compound that with the courts are closed for a lot of run of the mill business like that. So my options are very limited right now, which means that my stress level is going to be going through the roof even more than it would in normal times. And I think that that will be a reason that we see, you know, a sort of divorce boom, hopefully, when things return to normal sooner rather than later. It might not be that a ton of couples decided to get divorced during quarantine who wouldn't otherwise have made that decision at some point. But it's like there's this going to be this backlog, this logjam of people who would have been gradually going through the motions. And all of a sudden, once the courts open up, they're all going to be pounding on the doors, you know, asking to hurry up the process because they've been stuck together for so long. It'll be like a dam has broken. Marissa Cascino, senior editor at Washingtonian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.